Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to this episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. We're on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. And with me today, we have Marvin Law. Marvin is an artist who goes back. He worked for Bright Anvil Studios in the late 90s, early 2000s. He's currently working on Kronk the Neanderthal with Phil McCory, who was the editor of Monstrosity. If you remember from the Brian Avenue episode, they edited that together. Uh, Marvin also appears in the Monstrosity Anthology, and that's where he got to first do his character Zip Kramer. Now, Zip Kramer is sort of like uh, Zap Brannigan from Futurama. And uh, lucky for us, we have his collaborator on Zip Kramer. We have Sam Noir also in the studio with us. So uh, Sam will be able to jump in when we talk about uh, Zip Kramer. But for now, I want to get to know you, Marvin. I I want to know uh, where you grew up and what your early life was like. Uh, basically, I'm a Toronto boy, born and raised, born in the area of uh, Bathurst and St. Clair, currently living in uh, the area known as uh, Upper Beaches, East York. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So when did comics first enter your life? If my parents got to blame anybody, it'd be my two older cousins, specifically my eldest cousin, Gary, because uh, he's eight years older than I am. And he was an avid comic book collector. He has the whole John Byrne Claremont run of X-Men. I think part of the reason I saw comic books in his, he had his books of comic books all nicely acid-free backboard, put away in boxes, and I wanted to read them, and they're collector's items, so he's like, you know what? Instead of you reading them, how about we go draw comic books? And oh. that was essentially it. He's like, he wanted to keep my grubby, sticky, yucky fingers away from his comics. <laughs> so he's like, let's go over there with some blank paper, you can screw that up instead. Instead of my pristine, mint condition comics. That's hilarious. I love that. He created a professional hobby, and uh, he just wanted to protect his comics. That's Pretty awesome. much, yeah. He, had, he, I was reading stuff I shouldn't have been reading at that age, like Dark Knight Returns a year after it came out. So I was, I was born in 78, so it came out in 86. So I was reading it at eight years old. Wow. I was like trying to figure out, why is Batman punching Superman in the face? I thought they were friends. And then you're reading things like, I, I read Watchmen way too early. 
in my life. So I didn't understand, like, going, these guys are boring. They don't do anything. Like, this Rorschach guy looks like he's crazy and homeless. I don't understand this. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so like, then you then you had to, like, go back and reread all these things from your childhood? Yeah, some of them I reread. Like, a lot of things, like, I always tell people, 86 was the roughest year of my childhood. It was, it was a dark time as a kid growing up because I was a big Flash fan. And Crisis of the Infinite Earths was going on at the same time. And lo and behold, issue eight of Crisis of the Infinite Earths, they murder Barry. I'm like, no. <laughs> Spoilers if you haven't yes. read it for like the you last like 30, 30 years. years. <laughs> and then uh, was it, uh, 86 also the year the Transformers the Anime Movie came out. <laughs> yeah. I watched them murder my my fair Transformer Optimus Prime. They didn't just murder him. They're like, let's just fade him for red to gray. Uh-oh. Just slowly, just slowly fade him down and kill him. That's a rough year as a kid, like reading all this like Batman beating up Superman, Crisis, Transformers, and like the year you learned that even your heroes can fall down and go die. Wow. So how did that influence you going forward? Were you were you more trepidatious about reading comics from 87 to mm. beyond? No, it's, I love comic books as a kid growing up. I read them voraciously. It's kind of crazy. Like, I would read... Mind you, I was one of those kids that never read a certain book. I would follow certain artists around because mm-hmm. it just made it easier. Because like, if you're a certain artist you like, you just go, okay, what book are they drawing now? And back then, it was easier to follow because... They'd be on the same book for years. And then you're like, okay, George Perez, he's on New Teen Titans. I'm reading this then. Cool. And then, yeah, and stuff like that. And you're just, I was reading very religiously, even up to the point where I, even when I became a professional, I was still reading pretty heavily. Nice. Cool. So what was it about comics that spoke to you more than any other medium? Uh, I've been asked that actually quite a bit because people always ask me, why didn't you go into other avenues with your art? Like, well, you could have gone to film, animation, you could have gone to video games and things like that. And the truth is, comic books from start to finish, if you're a creator and you have the, if you have the drive and desire to do the whole thing yourself, like write, create, draw, color, letter, it can be your entire vision. And that's the thing. It's all it really costs is a pencil and paper and a little bit of time and effort on your part. And you can make the – you design – like a, a comic book artist essentially is, comes down to is we're the lighting person. We're casting director. We're wardrobe. We're prop person. We're going through all of these things and it's your vision. If it sucks, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Nothing you can do. No one else you can blame. Well, like, like oh, if you're doing a, working a film, you're just a, you're just a small cog in the machine because you're like this is, it takes so much effort and people to make a film. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, then it could be any other reasons other than that. But for a comic book, if it's your vision and you draw and, you, and people don't like it, there's no one else to point the finger at at that point. So you like that, like, the fate rests with you. Yeah, because it's, it's essentially, it's my vision, my world I'm giving the reader. Like, you can go, hey, look at this. It's like, I designed that chair. I designed that weapon, that sword. I, you can create the whole idea of this one world based around your your imagination that's it's so much. I love like for me, world building is so most funnest thing. It's like because you're creating a mythology in a world that that hasn't existed before. Nice. So, what did your parents think of this hobby? Like, I heard in my research that your your dad was like a f- martial artist. Yes, my dad actually teaches. Uh, he, he he used to teach Wing Chun. I don't think he does. He hasn't done it in a while, but. He does. Actually, my father actually read comic books. Okay. He read Hong Kong comic books. I, as a, even as a young boy, I was exposed to Hong Kong comic books like Storm Riders, uh, Dragon Tiger Gate, uh, 
trying to think of other ones. A lot of the Hong Kong ones. I was actually I was lucky because I was exposed to a lot of different comic book, like Hong Kong manga, European and North American comic books. So I've had the, the whole range of comic books. So so we've had people talk to us about European comics, but what are Hong Kong comics like? How how can you translate what they're like for like listeners? Uh, essentially, they're given how North American audiences are, are used to seeing superheroes as a genre. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong comic books mainly stick to martial arts or like martial arts fantasy, that sort of thing, where it's like like the whole idea of like it's it's a lot like how to say Dragon Ball, where it's like everybody's training harder for this bigger, badder monster every time. It's like going, okay, we're out, we're gonna go fight, and, all, and it's, I think. Hong Kong comics are weekly, weekly comics. Oh yeah, yeah, they're weekly, they're weekly comics. So you see the whole like Japanese style where it's like main artist does the main figure, and then the assistants do the backgrounds and additional figures on the side, things like that. And occasionally, see the occasional flourish of like the artists are like, I got time, I can do this crazy watercolor painting if I feel like it, and they do. You're like going. It's all pen and ink and just lightly colors, and you see this one water, incredible watercolor page. You're like, wow. Wow. So, like a splash page, yeah, but like yeah. really a splash page. But really, it's like just like quality level is like pencil ink, lightly colors, and then it's like this crazy Alex Ross esque thing coming out. You're like, that's a jump in quality. Wow. That's amazing. So, is it like manga, or is it, are there things about it that are different that are there's some specific to Hong Kong? Well, there's some similarities. It's, it's like I said, story wise, it's mostly th- based on Chinese themes, think with cultural things that people understand. But a lot of things, similarities where they actually intersect is like, I think it's due to speed and, and sort of getting things done at a certain time. It was like lots of speed lines. And things like that, because the sense of action fighting, because there's a lot of fighting involved, and these people are always in combat. It's more of a f- action-based style. But yeah, no, it's just, yeah, there's, Hong Kong is a weird, it's a strange thing where it's like, you see some, you see a lot of the influence from Western and, Western and Asian influences coming through the comic books. Because there's a lot of stuff where it's like, some of the superhero stuff bleeds through as well. You see some of the aspects of the posing and then the po- and uh, movement and character interactions. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So I'm a martial artist too, mm-hmm. kind of, because I, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. every week. So what was it like having a martial artist as a father? Like I look at my instructor, George, his kid, who's like uh, two or three right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's gonna that guy's going to be like so badass when he's like 10 years old. And like, you know, his destiny is sort of already pre-programmed for him because, you know, we already know that you know, nothing but jujitsu is, is going to be in his future. No, it comes with certain pressures. Like, because your father is, like, my father did train under Master Yitman with Bruce Lee at the same time in Hong Kong. Wow. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure coming from that direction where it's like, oh, you were, your dad does this, this, and this. And the, and the best thing I say is I didn't want to be stuck in my father's shadow forever. Because if you if I follow the same path as he would, I would have been stuck in the same path as Brandon Lee would have been stuck in. Right. Like you're always trying to live down that shadow of who your father is. Whether or not you can step out of it and do your own thing is it's hard enough as it is. And then can you live up to the person ahead of you? And it's like I love like I love martial arts as very I love martial arts movies. I love action. I love studying different martial arts and looking at different styles. It was never gonna be a lifestyle for me or it's like I have to do this forever. So there's one thing, it's, it's enjoyable having my dad to talk to about it, but it's never a thing where it's like, if only I, I had done it, like, I was like, no, I've done my, I did what I wanted to do with it, and I can defend myself relatively decently, I think, I hope. 
But yeah, no. <laughs> you want to test that? No, <laughs> no, no, no. Let's not do that again. No. <laughs> anyway, um, so that that that's really interesting. So, does your dad and did your dad like support your art, or did uh, he did he kind of wish that you followed in his footsteps? I don't know. He's you could say that he was encouraging. Like he he never he never dissuade me from following my dream. But he because he also write comic books, and he was if you enjoy it, if you like. Go do it, right? Be good at something, right? That's what mm. you want to do. Be so good at something and be happy doing it. And yeah, no, my my mother was probably the one that was probably more the one that wasn't too keen on me being an artist. Tell me about that. Oh, so she's like most Asian parents. Like, why don't you be a doctor, engineer? Why don't you be like your friend John and be a dentist or do something with numbers? Mm. Do something with computers, please. Yeah, just sort of the stereotypes. Yeah, just so they're going, why can't you do better math and sciences? Blah, blah, blah. And then... Why can't you be like your cousins and things like that? Like, and always, it's always comparisons. Always like the, the fear of not being able to make a living at doing this. And then it's understandable back then because it was like prior to the internet, getting your name out there was so much harder. And now that we've had the internet, now it's just it's it's a lot easier to get your exposure and name out there. But then again, you're yelling into a, a, a world of yellers, and the full it's, it's just everybody's out there. What are you doing different? That's special. It makes you unique. Mm, yeah, totally. So, do you still like now that you are a professional and you are like a known artist, at least locally? Do you still get that pressure from your mom? Oh yeah, of course. She she's still wondering like. When you will make a million dollars so I can retire? And then, where are my grandkids? And things like, oh, it's fun things like that. No, just being an Asian parent is never, I can tell you it's probably never, the worry never really stops. There's always like the tiger mom hovering thing where it's just like, as, as Sam nods his head and, and smiling and like tears rolling down. So I was like, this is what it feels like when the devs cry. But no, it just, it's, yeah, no, it's always that thing where it's like, could you be doing something where you were not working as hard or long hours and make more money? And yeah, there are, but is this what I'd be more fulfilled and happy doing it? Probably not. Right. So is it hard to do what you do as an artist without guilt, given what, you know, what your mom would rather you do? My life is for me to live and not for her. Good. And, that's, and then that's essentially that's it. It's like going, I would rather do what I do and be happy at it and just... You know what? Like, I have friends who are my age who do jobs that that they hate. They get paid a lot of money, but they're like, I hate my job. I hate my life. I'm getting paid a lot of money, but I wish I was doing what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I either feel good or bad. I feel like going, really? You want to make less money than me? Like, come on now. That's awesome. So when you were in high school, were you like the artist in high school? Were you actually, always drawing? Surprisingly, or? no. I actually didn't take art in high school. Okay. I, my parents were much very strict with the whole doing, being academic. And so I stuck to, I tended to do academic classes and trying to study hard and skipped art and just drew. I still drew on my own, but I still focused more on studying hard, being studious trying to get good grades and failing at it. The funny part is I actually ended up at OCAD. I don't know how I ended up there. You don't know how? Well, like, did you like stumble I, in and then they, they I, admitted I you? Applied, I applied to OCAD and did the portfolio review. And um, I think the only reason I got in because I had a re- – because back in the day, whatever the, this is before it was a university, but it's still a college. They were – the tie break was your English mark. I had a really high English mark for some apparent reason, which – we won't discuss because there was collusion on my getting my English grade, but oh, okay. Yeah, we won't we won't go into too much detail. That's but, interesting. But yeah, so there was a there's a thing where I was 
I, I got a really high grade in English, and the English was one of those prerequisite things that you're accepting as part of the of uh, initiate into OCAD. Right. So I think I was probably in the middle of the pack in terms of portfolio reviews, but because my English work was so high, it pushed me into getting into OCAD. So with this sort of academic pressure that was placed on you, what made you decide, I want to pursue this thing professionally, and I'm going to go for it, and like, screw, you know, whatever, I'm just going to do what I want to do? Well, the thing is, if, if I started young and if I screwed up, I could at least fix my life. It's like, okay, if, it, if you start, if you do it young, if you make a mistake and it doesn't go well, at least you still have time to fix what's left of your life and go on from there and try to re repair the damage you've done. If you, if you start later, like now, if someone had started, if I started 38 years old now, it'd be a lot tougher. You'd be bouncing things like mortgages, car payments, family stuff and then you're like it's a risk really worth it then like that at that point you're trying to build something from nothing right but yeah no but the funny part is i only lasted a year i only lasted a year at ocad i went i was there for a year and i got my fun uh my fun fundamental fundamental study yeah fundamental diploma and i left okay and then i went to u of t okay cool so what was at u of t i took criminology criminology that's like a total departure yes, like how is. do you go from art to criminology what happened it it was, it was something to appease my parents it's like going okay you've done the art school thing you didn't like it there i took a year off and i went back to u of t and i, I went to u of t afterwards and i was like okay well, I, I can i can get into certain programs i can get into what will hold my interest more and then i stumbled upon criminology I was like what this is this seems like it's half decent enough that I can. My parents will actually let me off the hook and not nag me for. The, at least I was. At least I wasn't taking English. Yeah, and you were interested. Like you, yeah. you wanted to be like CSI. Yeah, you were uh, like William Peterson. Yeah, it was. That was always a fun part where there was like going like at a certain point, and you're like going like I getting really tired of reading crime reports and crime scene photos, looking at crime scene photos and things like that. I'm like, okay, that's enough of that. Cool. But thankfully, one thing that most people don't know about is U of T has a really extensive comic book, old comic book collection. Oh, do they? 13th floor. Okay, so what what kind of stuff is on the 13th floor? Obviously, <sighs> you you went there and snuck yeah. away. I I was there. This is because going to UT coincided during my time when I was at Bright Anvil, when I first started Bright Anvil. So I got access to things I would have never had access to back in the, I guess, early 2000s. Like things like the old leather bound edition, like 19, 1918 bound editions of Windsor McKay, Little Neemwood Slumberland. Wow. Like these things were like huge. And I was like, and I was reading books. I got to read um, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud for free and then Reinventing Comics, then the uh, Will Eisner sequential art and storytelling. So all these things that were in the library at the U of T, so I could just take it out and just read in this. And I, I, thankfully I was able to, I actually took some things that interested me as a side, um, as minors, like, Cinema studies. So any form of visual storytelling I was getting in there, like UT has a pretty decent cinema studies course. And I was like, you know what? I If I want to learn visual storytelling, I should learn, look at all different forms of it and just try to study as much as I can. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So was Bright Anvil like your first professional opportunity? Yeah, it was actually, I joined Bright Anvil uh, in my year, just actually just after I left OCAD. Actually, no, I actually was, I actually was in OCAD during that time period. And uh, I met those guys. At a, I actually met Jay Torres, actually, at one of the early Toronto Comic-Con shows. He was actually at Brian Anvil as a writer and editor. And um, we were talking, and he was behind the table. And he actually, we were just chatting about comic books. 
And he asked me in passing, do you have a sketchbook? What do you do? I was like, I draw. And he was like, I had a sketchbook on me. Showed it to him. And then he took my sketchbook and brought it over to the studio director, Logan Lubera. And he kind of showed, then Logan said, yeah, you got some, you got some skills, man. You should come down to the studio and visit. And then the rest they say is kind of history. Like I spent three years. Well, they said, you know, you have the talent, you know how to draw, but you don't know how to draw comic books. At that point, I didn't understand what that meant. And then I learned the hard way where I was grossly undereducated on that department, which is why, thankfully, you've T came in handy to educate me on further on those things I need to learn about the abstract stuff of the invisible the invisible art of comics. So what is that? Uh, visible art of comics is pretty much most things that people take for granted when storytelling is um, 85% of comic book. The, great, the best thing about comic books is composition layout. Okay. For any panels, like the, the job of any comic artist is to get the reader through the page in a coherent, visually exciting fashion. So you're reading, you're reading from left to right for North American style, and in the ways you're directing the reader's eye to each panel in a way that's visually exciting and interesting, but they don't know they're being directed. It's like advertising. Your your eyes being led through, but where you're not sure how you're being led through, but you know which way your your next panel should go. And so that's the, that's where a lot of my friends who are really great artists and I, who are concept artists, and I said, they always say to me, like, hey, I'm a great artist, so it means comic books should be easy for me. And they get around to doing their first comic book page, and they're, like, struggling. Like, Why isn't this working? I'm like, it's because you don't understand the abstract concepts behind the com- for the idea of comics. You're, you're looking at the, the finished, glossy surface, but you don't know the, the intricacies of the underneath aspect of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, t- so you learned all of that stuff working at Bright Anvil, then? Yeah, I I was Bright Anvil was a very interesting learning situation where because you're surrounded by so many artists around that time period. Like, actually, the Bright Anvil at its height was about twenty five people strong. Okay, and so the people like the alumni in that studio were like Francis Manipool was there. He was a co-op boy at that point. Steve McNiven was there. Kalman Andrasovsky was there. Uh, Adrian Alfona, maybe. Adrian Alfona was later on. So he's actually near the second wave afterwards. Okay. Valentine Delanger was there. I'm trying to think who else was there. Uh, J- uh, Ch- Alex Chung was there. Wow. It's like they, all these really like Attila was there. Kalman was there. These All these guys would sit over your shoulder because they had more experience. The best thing they could do is they say, hey, you're drawing that arm wrong. You need someone to tell you you're drawing the arm wrong, but they're like, here's how you fix it. Right. So then that makes, okay, I just learned something that I can fix the problem that didn't take me 30 hours sitting at a drafting table stressfully, stressing myself out. So I have the solution now to the problem that I don't need a sketchbook for. Right. So it accelerated my growth to the nth degree because I was like looking at all these other artists and going, okay, what can I learn from each of them? What can they teach me? And then it gives you a place to grow. Like you're like, who am I aiming to? Not that I say it's competition, but it's like, you have goals and sort of aspirations to be as good as this person. And you're trying to get that level, like, I'm trying to try to catch up with this person, like, improve my skills to be... And it's like, like I said, it's a lot like Dragon Ball Z. So did they did they mentor you all equally, or were there some that stood out in your mind as people that had the most influence on, on you at that uh, time? Craig Young was very highly influential to me. Uh, Valentine Delandro. Uh, Logan Libero was very influential. Cool. I think... Uh, Francis was really uh, – Francis was never – he never helped me in my art, but he was more welcoming to me because I was I – was, we were about this we're, – we're close to the same age. And so I was one of the younger guys there, and I was a little – like, they're, they're, they're a bit off-put by young, new people sometimes. They're like, you're a stranger. You don't, they don't know you. But he was actually very welcoming and trying to make me feel like 
I belonged, at least part of the group. And I was like, oh, in that sense, I didn't feel like an outsider the whole time. Right, right. So tell me about a little bit about Bright Anvil. Like, what was it? I mean, it's it's a now defunct studio, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. uh, there's not a lot of resources left in the annals of Google and the internet. So can you tell me, like, what Bright Anvil was meant to be, what it was supposed to be? It, what it was was a collective of artists, like sort of a co-op. So we the, the studio space originally was on the one I got to was on Queen Street West, just I think east of Spadina, and uh, yeah, we had two studio offices. Yeah, people were coming and draw. It was pretty much everyone would pay studio table fees, rent for the space, like like a barbershop would the chair space, and you come in when you wanted to and didn't want to. It's like you use the space as much as you wanted to, mm-hmm. and we all hung out, got to know each other, grew, talked about cons, connections, editors, things, opportunities here and there, and. It was supposed to be grow into a business, which didn't actually happen. Yeah, didn't they produce some comics? They there were some pro, some comics produced under there. I think Outlaw Seven came out through there through Dark Horse. I know we self published a book with while I was editor in chief called Chrono Gear, uh, which had Mike Domundo, Marco Delfonso, Adrian Alfonso drew the cover. Yeah, there's a lot of young like those those guys mostly started out as like. Marco Delfonso and like was my co-op student, and then I I I took I kind of showed Adrian Elfona the ropes of being a kind of helped him along during the thumbnails runaways when we first got the job. At first, like in the first wave, you were mentored by the artist, but mm-hmm. then eventually you rose to like a yeah. position where you were mentoring others. Yeah, pretty much. It's just paying it forward. Essentially, just like the the legacy of the studio. Like all these guys helped me when I was younger, and then. I took what I learned and tried to give to them. The other younger guys coming up behind me were like, well, I learned these from this guy. I've added other things to this thing that I've learned. So I'm going to give to you guys and you guys can do what you want with it and learn and do the best you can. Like, So so what position did you, did you rise to and how did that opportunity come about? I became editor-in-chief. I guess it was due to the fact that I was, I guess I'm a, ha- a half-decent communicator and teacher, I guess. And I was in the studio a lot compared to everyone else. And everyone else was a, a lot better artist, so they were all busy doing gigs. So no one no one had time to bring up the young guys. So they're like, well, how about you do it then? And it's like, okay, I'll take care of the young guys. And yeah, so that's essentially how that ended up and probably the most stressful year of my life. Wow. So what would you like take us through the stress of that? Like you were helping Adrian Alfana get the job on Runaways. No, no, no. He got that on his own. He, I was, oh. I, he got that on his own on his... I think it was our first, it was a trip to Wizard World Philadelphia with me, Valentine, and Adrian, first time ever. Okay. And he had his portfolio and got discovered, and his name got, his his artwork got put into a portfolio book, and Brian K. Vaughn came to Triggs and Runaways Artist, flipped through the portfolios, said, I want this guy. And that's how that was done. Yeah, I, th- I think Brian K. Vaughn, like, that's how he picks a lot of his artists. He, he flips through portfolio books and yeah, they, they drafts had one, people. Yeah. I think CB at that point was talent, head of talent relations, and uh, he had the book there. It goes, here, flip through for all these new guys we have on, that we haven't been used yet, but that we have, we're waiting in the wings and we're prepared to go. And he chose Adrian, and that was Adrian's first gig, and I was like, he came to me and goes, how do I do this? I've I've never done a team book before. I'm like, okay, let's let's go through this together, and then Go through the script and see who's who talks. Like the easiest way of doing a group book is, and the, my only personal pet peeve is crisscrossing word balloons. So the best thing to do is look who's talking first, 
and then figure out the seating seating arrangement based on that. So whoever talks first is on the, is on the left side of the panel, and they talk properly through. So no one's crossing over word balloons. Right. So that you're not as the reader going back and forth yeah. with your eye. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things. That's one of my pet peeves is like, you know, how can you make the reader's life easier and doesn't make them not have to work so hard to do it, mm-hmm. get through the story. And so that's usually the, that's how that goes. So, so you were, you were telling him how, just basically how to like arrange the panel. Yeah, We sit there, we sit there for the first three issues of runaways going through the script and just, I offer suggestions, ideas or shot selections and ideas where, why things would work. And like, I remember the one shot that we talked about a lot was um I think the first issue of Runaways when Nico first shows up and you see Alex's hand on the hand railing and she's framed in the doorway in the door frame I was like a frame within a frame so you frame her in the door frame which is like a it's all, it's all you're isolating her in the door frame and it's the perfect boy meets girl shot nice that's awesome I, so it's just things like that like visual storytelling for like that's like a romantic comedy romance thing where like how are we using the eyes and all these cliches and storytelling because you're telling essentially when you're choosing shots and choices and panel selections, you're essentially psychologically telling the reader something that they should be feeling when they're looking at a comic book panel. Like if you're doing, a, if you're trying to give a sense of height, you do a tall, narrow panel because it gives you a sense of how tall these buildings are, how high up you are. So those things are like psychologically giving the reader a feeling, a sense of what they should be feeling before they even realize it. Mm-hmm. One of my problems, like I, I'm doing sort of my first couple of assignments and uh, one of the major ones is in the Toronto Comics Anthology. And uh, I noticed that like, you know, you're given like a limited number of pages, but you have all this information to lay out in the page. And I noticed that like I run out of pages and I need. Uh, so, so what happens is at the end of the story, I'm laying out a lot of panels that probably cannot fit on that page right like do do writers do that kind of thing a lot where like they try to cram a lot of stuff into a few pages because they know that they're almost at the end of the story oh that part you have to ask sam about <laughs> sam sam is probably in this problem more than anybody else has here. i'm always begging for more pages when possible <laughs> if not then uh yeah you go back and you have to rethink from start because uh, the other thing is you're th- thinking of page turns as well right? right and pacing and and sometimes you're you're thinking of rhythm right so yeah you you get to a certain point and you realize you've you've outlined a certain thing but then the the characters take over right right are you working with allison right now well in th- uh, who's who's your editor andrew right now oh andrew yeah okay. yeah gotcha. and it's, i mean it's going well like it's it's done we, we pretty much know we're doing what we're doing now but uh my artist colton gilson uh also fairly new also fairly new had to spend a lot of time fixing what i wanted so that it would actually fit into into what it was supposed to fit into basically like he basically relayed out the page so that i looked more impressive than i actually am i guess that's really the job of every comic artist is to uh do take the story the script you get and either look at it as structurally go okay. You have to go. How am I going to get to the end point where where the re- where the writer wants me to get to, in a way that's coherent mm-hmm. and looks proper. And that's and that's always our job. Is like sometimes you like I run the problems where I have scripts where some writers keep forgetting it's not animation or live action. There's like three movements in the panel. I'm saying like I can't do three moves. I can give you maybe one or two. I can't do subtle because subtle doesn't work in comics. Right. Because subtle, subtle's like 
subtly raise their eyebrow and like, how do I do that in a comic book? Because comic books are meant is a visual medium, where like subtlety does not work here. Right. So there's, there's things like that. You're like, okay, how am I going to take this and interpret it? Because sometimes writers are used to writing prose novels, movie scripts, or screenplays. So they're like, their their mindset set is a little different from comic books. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that happens once in a while. You get to the point where whenever I've written a thing, it was, it was very rare that I ever get a chance to write anything because I'm not a very good writer. Mm-hmm. But I can pace the heck out of anything. But but essentially, what I do is I break down things like, okay, I I go, how many pages do I have? How many? What are my key scenes? How many? How many pages are I logging to each key scene? So sometimes I'll say, okay, they're going to talk about this exposition scene about this, the character. Well, two pages for that. Then they go, okay, fight scene, six pages. So I work on something like those. Okay, so I have twenty-two pages now filled out. Plot. Well, I figure I know which major beats I have. So I use that to basically structure around like how many panels am I putting on a page? My rules, my personal rule of thumb is I never go over, I try not to go over five panels because that means that the art doesn't get a chance to breathe and then you're trying to cram too much into a panel where things get, panels get too small. You can't read what's going on. Right, right. Okay. So those are, that's always the things I have rules I always follow. Nice. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. But with your own stuff, I mean, so, you, so you're working at Bright Anvil, you're like the editor-in-chief, you're mentoring all the new guys coming in. I mean, so so how did that go? And then what happened? Things were going okay, I guess, at a certain point, because Bright Anvil isn't here anymore. Right. But you no, know, essentially, what it comes down to is we couldn't figure a way to financialize the studio space. Because our studio, the last studio we had was at Spadina and Wellington, behind the Globe and Mail building. And that place was expensive. Because we were hemorrhaging $2,400 a month. And that was bef- this was back in 2005, before the whole real estate insanity begins in Toronto. Wow. So I, I only want to imagine how to be paying now for rent. But you guys did have some commercial work, right? For Well, everybody who did work, like you found your own gigs. So you find your own gigs, and so it's like, okay, everybody had their own gigs. Would they would keep their own gigs? So like, no one's got to share money like that. Like, yeah, for the studio. Yeah. So it's so it's like, so eventually, the if if we could have figured a way to get everyone like working consistently, the studio probably would have been still been here. But it's just one of those things where it's just like it's it's hard to get a collective working together. It's always difficult because you're trying to get everybody work get on the same skill level and. To make money, and it's just it's just one of those things where there's a lot of people are at different skill level. Everyone's people are learning. Some people are, aren't ready yet, and the the rent still due you have every month. So it's like, what are we gonna do? Right. And you guys tried to produce some books, right? Out yeah. of out of the studio. Yeah, two. We had we eventually two books came out. Chrono Gear was the first one. I try to remember the name of the second one. Whether or not I can't remember the off the top name of the second one. But then some of them went to Image or other companies once Bright Anvil closed, right? Yeah, yeah okay. like yeah, everybody just went off their separate ways and did their own thing. Right. Okay. I, like me, I was I went off and did my own thing after that. So, but you get but Bright Anvil started out as like a studio space, like just mm-hmm. like a place to work. Yeah, just a collective of artists teaming up together to learn from each other, sort of like give each other knowledge and hints and sort of connections and ideas and then we would hit cons together and get like sometimes we some people are like oh i know this editor so we can try to hit up we, we all can try to hit him up together like mm-hmm. and 
go to the Marvel parties and things like that. Right, right. That yeah, good strategy. I mm-hmm. mean, you 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 use like the swarm tactic. And well, the, yeah, it's one of those things. Like, if he doesn't like my style, he might like your style instead. Like, right. Like, yeah. So it's one of those things where like maybe he might help you along the way. Right, know? right. Yeah. No, no, no. And like, and you know, art is usually like a solitary thing. So mm-hmm. you know, it it helps to have you know people to like bounce ideas off yeah. of and you know, try to get work together and have some camaraderie. But then you went from that to like producing your own books. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen? Was it just like, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing their own creator own stuff. Why don't we publish them? Because they're already here. They're already coming and working on them and stuff. I mean, me or uh, the studio? Just the studio in general. Uh, that just came up with an opportunity to get uh, the younger guys pu- published, get okay. them work, get them working, get the name published, so they get something to show editors. Like when the, when Fan Expo would come around, we could show Marvel and DC editors like these young guys like have worked though. they've done pages. Like you just take a look how because the question always is like, oh, it looks good on samples. Can you get something of quality published in time? Like it's always the thing is like. Editors never know how long you took on your samples. You could tell you could tell them, yeah, I did these in a week, but essentially you could you could be lying. You'd be like, it took you six months to do those pages, right? And then and that's one of those things where it's like, okay, now they have got something published. It's like, okay, they've actually done something on time and of quality work. So it's like you can judge this now, right? Just why a lot of times editors are very nowadays are hesitant to choose guys who have are very green and have nothing published under their belt mm-hmm. because they run that problem where it's like. How green are you? Can you handle the stresses of production work? You know, Bright Anvil is pretty. That's a pretty good gig. I mean, you got to you got to mentor a lot of people. You got to be editor in chief of a studio. Did it lead to anything afterwards? There, there was discussion behind the scenes about possibly me being an editor somewhere else at a bigger company, but it involved me moving to uh, New York City and getting a green card, which would have been a, a lot of hassle. Yeah, of course. Like it's it's tough to get a green card. If it's tough to get a green card now, it'd be tough to get a green card back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe maybe a little bit easier than it is now, but still still difficult. So where did you land after uh, after Bright Anvil? Uh, I worked from home. Actually, I had my home studio set up and just used my connections I made over the years and just kept working. And then eventually branched out further on my own. Yeah, just mostly just. Branching out further, getting more networks and getting to know more people, editors and different gigs. Like, I tell a lot of young kids who are like, oh, I just want to draw comic books. Like, well, that's good and dandy. There are only a certain number of jobs out there for people. Like, so you probably, like, the thing about doing art, you can always take it anywhere you want. I've, I've done other things. Like, I've done video games. I've done film concept designs. I've done storyboarding for animation. I've done, I've done t-shirts. I've done toys so it's like always other possible things that you can do other than make money like as long as you're still getting paid to draw right that means you're still working so that doesn't really matter right doesn't doesn't always have to be for the big two or any other big company so you can as long as you figure a way to get more jobs and gigs as long as it's paying the bills that matters most so who were you working for out of your home studio uh like like video game companies and like film companies and stuff yeah just some stuff here there loose stuff cool that's awesome. So, were you working on your own creator own books then, or, or? Oh yeah, yeah. I've done a handful of things here and there. Like I was working on one clo- uh, one um, fantasy project. There's a sort of a uh, fantasy comedy action thing called uh, Cloudwalkers. Okay. And then I did a wrestling comic book for a while called Slam. 
So I was, I'm big, I'm big in the video games. I love, I love video, I love fighting games. I love wrestling. So I was like going, if I figure a way to combine the both of them to one thing, I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, things like that. Then eventually later on down the line came, uh, Zip Kramer and then the Kronk and things like that. Cool. Collaborate with other people. So uh, Zip Kramer came out of, uh, the monstrosity Untold. Volume two. Yeah. Uh, edited by Phil McClory and like Brian, Brian Avenue. Right. So how did that come like when how did you find out about it what made you want to like contribute a story oh i'm i'm friends with brian and phil and i uh we had worked on the we had a me and phil were at that point working on cronk before so volume one came out and they put and phil decided to put the cronk our cronk story into volume one so that's how i got involved with volume one of monstrosity okay and then when came time to volume two came around I didn't have a stare like oh we have a, we were looking for a script for you for to work off for the for second volume, and they had Sam's Zip Kramer's script lying around. It says, "How about we team the two of you together?" It seems like it would be a good match. Yeah, just lying around. Eh? Yeah, they're like, "Oh, we don't have an artist for this book yet." They're like, "You, see, you seem like you'd probably be a good fit." Cool. And now, yeah, so that uh, was one of those things where like we they know I can do serious violent things that are dark. They're like. And Zip Kramer wasn't as dark as the more light heart. It was, it was the first one actually was pretty dark. A little, honest. yeah, it's, it's a yeah. Little dark. It has overtones, right? So, so Sam, how did you come up with the idea for Zip Kramer? It, it reminded me a lot, like I said, off the top of uh, Zap Brannigan. Uh, yeah, Futurama. yeah, which again has its its roots in pulp, and uh, I think uh, we many of us have been having this conversation about uh, how many in the Toronto area have this real pulp influence especially with the old characters you know flash Gordon, the, the spacefaring characters yeah. the ec comics so uh yeah for me there's a great love of uh, and this is you know other than the the tv shows uh a lot of this stuff was before my time but i've uh had a lot of opportunity to sort of this is the great thing having libraries and uh, collected editions so you go back and dig through all of this stuff and and uh yeah i guess it was an opportunity to to take that style the weird science from ec comics for example where they have the eight page twist ending and sort of turn it on its ear right uh, take the square jawed and again it's it's coming from the same place where a zap brannigan for example is taking uh the air out of a square jawed typical action hero right and like a flash gordon yeah, yeah yeah like a flash gordon and uh yeah this well this is the funny thing too i i mean i've i've told the story before you're you're aware of it uh I initially went in working with Chris Yao. Like okay. I, I, in general, had uh, have a long term sort of friendship and relationship working with Chris. And yeah, at that point, I, I thought, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of I, I'd be riding Chris's coattails into this project, which again, uh, I was completely blindsided. Uh, Brian and, and Phil just sort of said. Uh, no, that, that we don't think Chris is is the right fit for for your script. And I thought, well, I have a very sort of deadpan, you know, naked gun sort of because because Chris has a very typical traditional style, shall we say, mm. with a tiny bit of cartooniness. So I didn't know Marvin very well. Uh, uh, we had met maybe once or twice before. I, I think we we were aware of each other, but. Yeah, I I was kind of uh, flummoxed for when they when they told me this because I'm kind of but but Chris, and of course I was wrong, dead wrong. How uh, how were you wrong? Like, what, what was Marvin it? was perfect for it. Marvin was in fact because he's funny. 
not just on the page. Like, like his drawings are funny, but Marvin in general is a hilarious guy. Now that we, we're friends and, and I've gotten to know him since then. And then uh, obviously this collaboration has endured right. as well. We had so much fun with that first. So, so yeah, I, this is, uh, whenever I'm wrong, I will firmly admit. Because, of course, you're, you're, you've got the blinders on, right? right? It's like, oh, Chris and I are going to do this together. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, I got in the door, but Chris didn't? Because, again, this was my first, I think, uh, published gig that wasn't self-published, right? right. So, uh, again, a little bit of shock. And then once the design started coming in, and then once the the I pages after, started well, I think after in. we had lunch. We had lunch, we went for burgers and talked about the project. Oh, did we? You, okay. I met you at the, we were back at the, where the, you were still down the embassy. Oh, that's and right. And we went to Kensington, right. we went to Kensington Market for burgers to talk, <laughs> to talk it over because we were like, we don't know each other that well, so let's get to know each other, let's yeah. go out and just talk, talk like, talk and about the themes. we got along really, really well yeah. like, in terms of, uh, and, and then over, over time, it's like, you kind of realize, we're coming from a very similar place here, mm-hmm. even though I had originally envisioned a very straight up sort of uh, spoof on on Wally Wood or, or a deadpan sort of Wally Wood style because EC sort of my other huge influence is Mad Magazine. Right. It, again, in that sort of EC tradition, I'm, I'm uh, Wood, of course, also worked for Mad Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman's uh, incarnation of Mad Magazine, and this seemed to really flow into you, your 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 more sort of uh, cartoony style. And uh, the other thing we discovered is we have a lot of common interests. I think the the anime, mm-hmm. uh, the Hong Kong action movies as well. Uh, both of us, uh, we, we talked about the Chinese comic books at oh, one yeah, point yeah, yeah. as well. And all this just started feeding into, and then the characters really took on a, a life of their, their own. This was written as a one-shot. Right. It was a one-shot, one-gag character. And then for the longest time, uh, because we had said, oh, this is fun. How do we keep this going on? I had to sit there and it's like, I don't like this guy. Can I come up with a story? And then, of course, the story hook was uh, uh, Nuon, who's uh, Zip Kramer's sidekick. She's a poor orphan girl from the most, you know, wretched, uh, essentially the the, uh, backwater planetary equivalent of uh, a Calcutta slum, I guess, where, you know, there's human trafficking and terrible things. And she's just a small girl who nobody notices and someone who, I guess isn't a jerk like zip is a jerk to everyone but it just so happened she was small beyond his notice and he wasn't a jerk to her and in fact uh she got benefits simply following him around and she as their relationship evolves he becomes a better person so you have a place to go with a character who's essentially an idiot so uh i love the uh, zap brannigan comparison Right. But on the flip side, what if Zap Brannigan got to learn just a little bit at a time and evolve over time? Right. So this has been the beauty of it as well. Uh, just it, it, there's a lot of comedy in there. And uh, I have noticed that over the course of the last two stories we've done, he has gotten to be like Homer's getting dumber and dumber as we go on. That's true. It's just like, because like, like, the first story in Monstrosity 2, and you're like, He's still like this sort of, I, I'm serious? So it's like, it's sort of like Buzz Lightyear before he realizes he's a toy. Right. So it's like, he's like, I'm here to save the day. And by the second story, I'm like reading it, I'm like going, 
he's just getting dumber. And then by the third round, I'm like, wow, we're slipping into Homer Simpson territory now. <laughs> like, we're like, we're going like, the situations are getting worse. And like, we're like, huh. It's like, he's even stupider now. <laughs> this is, like, you're like, how can you make this situation more interesting? Let's dumb him down some more. Right. So one of the things that strikes me about what Sam is saying is your ability to uh, convey comedy, which is really hard to do. And, you know, it's hard to write comedy, but it's it's got to be hard to, like, do visual comedy, too, and make it funny. Like, sometimes people try to do visual comedy and it doesn't actually come across as comedic. So how do you inject the funny into Zip Kramer? Well, it's just the, it's just, it's the juxtaposition of the something him doing something very serious and it but it ends up being very absurd it's like like their second story where he's attacking those praying mantis exterminator guys he's thinking i'm gonna go hack and slash without even questioning what's going on he's just like they're they look ugly i'm gonna go attack them and save the cute things because they're probably harmless and you find out through his rash decision making choices that it's like i'm just gonna go just Guns blazing and it's it, and you're like and you're and the poor lady and like thankfully for nuance there she's like sitting like what are you doing like she's the voice of reason where it's like like zip what why it's like I think we you might have made it and he looks around and he's like oh I made a mistake what are we gonna do now right let's run right <laughs> and she's always there to like clean up the mess kind of thing yeah right? pretty much she's she's our Lisa Simpson <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah she's just sitting there saying like why are you doing this yeah and this is the beautiful thing about a continuing collaboration though like like I said a part of the evolution of Zip's character is probably for the fact that it was written for someone else to begin with but then once we started lobbing things back and forth there's there's a suggestion you made which is my favorite to date in that that uh, you suggested the the dog. There's a, a character uh, we've introduced. I think uh, is it the third story now that, that yes, he got uh, introduced. Yes, the Kramer in Love. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Where where Marvin's like because because he knows I have a dog. Okay, and he knows you I have post pictures of my dog <laughs> constantly, and I'm always talking about my dog again with the dog. And he's just kind of like. How about we have a character of a dog that plays against every dog archetype, <laughs> and he is an even bigger jerk than <laughs> Zip is. He's sort of our... our uh, and he's kind of evolved into our Dr. Smith character from Lost in Space, where Zip and Nuance... The dog is a Nuance sidekick to Nuance sidekick of Zip, <laughs> and he's always working to undermine her. So we have a situation where Zip is always getting into ridiculous situations. Nuon is there trying to make things better, but she's also got, you know, someone undermining her from the other end. So it, it, it's, actually, it's actually uh, a great deal of comedy. And, and because once I've seen how he handles the dog character, it's like, oh, and this is how he handles Zip. And this is how Marvin handles Nuon. And it, it's almost like a, a back and forth. Mm -hmm. this, this rhythm we now have in, in collaboration where you'll suggest something and we just spitball back and forth. And I think that's where the funny comes from. It wouldn't be as funny if we were sitting here uh, just handing scripts back and forth. Right. Or collaborating in isolation yeah. in a way where it's like, I'll do the writing, you do the drawing. That's it. Like, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We're in a vacuum or no one does any. Like, yeah. that's, that's the thing with the fun things is always is just tossing ideas like, what about this idea? 
Well, then they'll then they'll just generally like, oh, that's the he'll tell like maybe I'll just take a different direction like this. Mm-hmm. So it's like some sort of crazy alchemy that we have going on where it's like, okay, you have your ideas and he'll spit and it'll it'll branch off into new uh, different ideas and new avenues will be discovered. Yeah, and it's amazing how you know some people bring that out of you and you know some people do not or it or it's a different feeling depending depending well, on who you're collaborating we, we with we speak the same language i think it, you know there's so many shortcuts right now in terms of uh uh, for example, I think uh, the fact that we both know uh, a certain era of 90s anime where, without giving it too much away, you, you read Zip Kramer in Love, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you see the uh, uh, antagonist in this one, uh, again, is sort of a, a spoof of a lot of 90s anime, except he's made it funny. It's it's kind of like, whereas in the anime, it was sort of horrific. Again, without giving too much away, there, there's a transmogrification that takes place. And uh, usually in these animes, it's very, it's very dramatic, and it's very horrific. And it, it, you know, the viewer cringes, whereas here, it's just like, pfft, I'm making that sound effect. Viewers can uh, try to figure out from that sound effect, what's happening? Yeah. But uh, it it reads as as slapstick comedy. Wow! And it's because we had that shortcut of saying, uh, "Oh yeah, remember uh, Legend of the Overfiend? Or <laughs> Wicked City? Or Wicked City? Yes, yeah. Let's make fun of like it was a whole genre of animes, yeah. anime in the in the nineties, where we could just sort of draw upon and riff on and throw our ridiculous characters into that situation, and the characters come alive. This is the other thing too. It, the latest script I, I probably had the most difficult with because we were talking about running long. And of course, uh, the, thank goodness for Marvin, uh, as because I, I outlined 10 pages, it started going to 14, and suddenly it's ballooned because the characters sort of take on a life it's, of its own. And also, I love it when um, we're trying to enter, what, what's happened here is we're trying to entertain each other. Right. Uh, it's like no one else, he's got the script in there, but it's like no one else <laughs> is looking the, this this was originally our ten page script. Wow. Uh, Marvin has just pulled out the phone book that the script has evolved. <laughs> it, 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 so the ten page script that evolved into twenty two pages, which actually prints out to forty three. <laughs> wow. I want to tip you, hey Alan Moore. <laughs> but again, part of this is I'm sitting there trying to entertain Marvin. I'm trying to keep Marvin amused. I'm I'm like, okay, I've given him the two or three exposition pages. He wants to draw wild action, ridiculous situations, monsters. And then it's like, rather than cramming this into like, what, an eight panel page or six panel page? I would have killed you. Yeah, we we had the conversation. And again, this is, this is the, the lovely thing about Marvin. We had this conversation and he's like, yeah, let's give this room to breathe. So we've got a lot of uh, uh, splashes and three pages in there. Because I knew you would love that. Like, let's have this choreographed scene. And even in the car today as well, uh, we were bouncing back and forth. And you were yeah. you were kind of like after the... Because, I again, I'm probably ridiculously spoiled, especially uh, talking to the editors of, of Toronto Comics. I'm, I'm probably in the unique situation of uh, always having a very personal relationship with all my artists that, that I work with, right. which isn't the norm in mainstream corporate comics. You always work through an editor. Yeah. And or over, uh, the, and over the phone. Not only do you work through an editor, but... At a distance. You're at a distance. Like, it could be somebody in Canada, somebody in the U.S. 
And you might not even talk to your your. Yeah. Uh, you have the experience, I guess, working in Toronto Comics, right? Uh, did you mostly work through Andrew then? I mostly worked through Andrew. Yeah, basically without- just worked through Andrew. Colton would like you give the script to Andrew. Uh, you pick we like we I, I chose Colton like we we figured out mm-hmm. that I wanted to work with Colton. I met with Colton once to give him like references and explain my vision and sort of thing. But mostly it was like okay, here's a script. You know, we'll see we'll see when it's when it's done kind of thing. And then it was on Colton to sort of submit the pages to to Andrew and me. But like. You know, once he started drawing, that was his that was his thing to figure out, basically. Mm. And I think my other thing is I letter all my stuff. So I get another pass at it where uh, essentially uh, Marvin will, will give me this stack of thing. And then you, you see the thick script there. It's a lot of it. A lot of it is like blah, 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 blah. But I can throw out half of that. And I always do. I always end up. This is this is our umpteenth collaboration now, and it's like you get a certain script, and then I see he's done it all visually. So I don't. Whereas in a case where I've just submitted the script and it goes to a letter, right. so uh, by the time I'm lettering, I get another kick at the can to to throw away everything, which see, is see in my growing sort of comic offshoot thing that I'm doing I think learning how to letter is going to be very crucial to like being more involved in the col- in the col- in the collaborative process going forward. I'll give you a book. Uh, you know what? I have a book at home. I'm going to give the- it to you. Okay. And uh, install Adobe Illustrator on your thing and uh, I I don't know why all letterers don't or sorry, why all writers don't letter their own stuff. It okay. it is uh, uh it's a skill. Okay. You can learn it. And then once you do, it gives you so much more control over your words. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the su- Marvin and I worked to a certain point where where even a lot of this dialogue, I'm, I'm writing extraneous dialogue. It, I will freely admit it's extraneous dialogue. I'm running, writing in to give him an idea of what's going on. And then once he's actually conveyed it visually, I don't have to convey it through the text. So it goes out the window. And right, this, right. And so is... only the most basic lines that need to be there remain. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the other thing is, everybody should work on silent scripts at some point or another. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with, uh, again, I'm, I'm digressing into my world, but uh, J.S. Longstreet and I did Holmes versus Moriarty together, which is a complete pantomime script. Right. And it was a revelation to me. So yeah, you go off, work with other people, and then you bring the sensibility because Marvin, his body language, his expressiveness, uh, it, it's all there in, in sort of the the characters. So I don't need to convey it through words. Right. It's already conveyed. Uh, and I trust the artist enough to let it play in pantomime. So there are actually a few silent pages in there for once. Well, there's a few of them in space. Or did they go like? This is like, true. This is like, true. There's like traveling through space. They're warp speed. I'm like going. I don't know what you're talking about. They're like going. Unless you're going to make a Doctor Who reference along the way. I'm like, yeah. Oh. yeah. So, because if you work with silent scripts, you learn as a writer how to convey things visually. Economy storytelling. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. That's really good advice. Like, thank you so much for that. You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. 
This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. The script is so thick, I couldn't staple it, so I had to punch a hole through it. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like crazy. So now that it's expanded, I wanted to get back to like I've noticed with uh, Zip Kramer, it's it's usually like he's started to make appearances in anthologies. Whenever you guys get an anthology job, I mean, you he appears in Monstrosity, but then he appears again in Strange Romance. I don't know if like the editor's like, what? Another Zip Kramer story? That's, that's, oh, you, uh, you are we doing Zip Kramer so again? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. No, uh, basically because, well, this is the beautiful thing about Toronto as well. This, this whole culture of anthologies, people realize uh, they're stronger sort of together. And yeah, it, it's, it's funny. There's the usual gang of idiots who, you know, every, the, the same names appear because, you know, uh, yeah. well, I think it, it's a lot of us who are a little more experienced at this point that, that can anchor right. some of these anthologies and then a lot of new people right. that get to... Cut their teeth. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I get, again, I don't know how I keep sneaking into Toronto Comics. I think I'm in uh, four out of the five volumes right now right. and they keep, you know, locking the door and I keep breaking in the back. Way. Well, because I think, I, think, I think it's your collaboration with Gwen. I think... Gwen's, I think, requested the support. So I think, I think that's because, true. That's true. Because you collaborate with Gwen, mm-hmm. and and she's most comfortable collaborating with you. I think. And again, this is another long yeah. long term relationship, right. and uh, uh, where where you again have this personal relationship. And I've always been. We we always have worked on stories together, but have I've always done all the typing. Right. So that gives me an, an inordinate amount of control over over the process, but it also sort of frames her up and. Right. and and uh, you know what? When I come back, I'll, I'll I'll give you the insight into the insanity of that. And God bless Allison O'Toole, <laughs> our editor, who, who uh, puts up with all our shenanigans. Nice, nice. It's, every so, every artistic relationship has its its uh, uniqueness. Like we, Marvin and I, work in a very unique way. And uh, me and my all my other longtime artistic collaborators, each process is so different. Right. It's astonishing how each process is different. And, and once you figure out their strengths and once you figure out how it works, and then you can start even experimenting as well. Like, I, I think I played around with the script a lot. Like, we did a lot of experimental things that, again, I'm kind of like, I think let's just veer this way and see what happens. So, so because it's the usual gang of idiots, the mad, mad <laughs> magazine reference, they're fine with building universes and carrying characters over from one anthology to to This another, is the beautiful another. thing about anthologies. They're wonderful places to experiment with. They're wonderful playgrounds. You're not necessarily carrying it. And, and I think this is what we were saying earlier. I feel a certain degree of liberty working with Marvin because I feel like this is just us. You know, if, if only Marvin and I were our own audience, that would be fine. Right. with me because we're we're entertaining each other and suddenly in monstrosity you see what works about it and you go somewhere else and you can kind of say hey i've got an idea for this that fits into your sort of milieu and you and and the other great thing is uh you can write a story where uh, you don't ha- necessarily have to know it's part of an 
ongoing set of characters. You can read the strange romance story on its own, sort of as a as a one shot. Right, right, exactly. There's and, no continuity in there. And luckily for you, strange romance was all about you know science fiction mixed with romance. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So I, Zip Kramer fit in there. I wouldn't pretty have pitched perfectly. it to, to Hogtown Horror, right, right. for for example, or <laughs> exactly. or uh, any of the others. And and again, I had already been noodling this idea as well. It had already sort of been in the list of uh, funny situations. Uh, and it yeah it just sort of happened to to work out chronologically. So then, well. so and then, color. This is the other beautiful thing. Okay, we got like like we had monstrosity. We got to do this, and then in strange romance, uh, a whole new playground to play play in. Uh, I think we sent you the color story. Yeah, and Marvin did this beautiful job of it was almost cell cell shading cell shading and, and you know because I had never seen the characters well the covers and all that, but for the sequential art to be color, it really sort of turned some gears in my head in terms of the anime influence, mm, wow, at nice. least. Nice. So I'm going to talk to you about anime later on because yeah. I have something that I want to bring into this conversation from an anime perspective. But like, you know, you're taking it from one anthology to another. One of the other benefits too is like, it goes to a wider audience. It's not just self-published. You do get a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. a project that's actually going to go out and, do, and be with people. And you don't have to worry about that. You just do your thing and then mm-hmm. the editors take care of the rest yep. kind of thing. Oh, that's the beautiful part. Right. If, if uh, yeah, the, the goal. Because <laughs> self-publishing is tough. We've, we've self-published as well. Right. And yeah, self-publishing, we don't necessarily uh, uh, are able to, say, afford color. Right, right. You know, or or play around with it a little. Actually, it, it that limitation is really good because that way, uh, rather than be slave to continuity, it's kind of refreshing to be able to write a self-contained thing. Right, right. And and it's a challenge as well, right? So, so the fact that you're taking it from one anthology to another and readers, if they're following in the Toronto scene, are introduced to Zip Kramer this way. But you have a script like this, <laughs> and that, I mean, for me, like, th- this could never be in an anthology. This would have to be a, its own thing. So and that's are exactly you spinning what it is. off into a, your own self-published Zip Kramer from, uh, from now on? Thank you for, for asking this. Essentially, uh, right now, we've, we've got a bunch of stories. The reason why we have so much freedom, like, uh, I didn't have to contain it to, to the eight pages, is we are publishing a collected edition. Okay. So we're taking all the different stories, collecting it into one volume, and then we have the script, which is uh, which is called uh, Zip Kramer's Final Bow. We won't say anything else, but uh, again, we we get to to be a little more uh, experimental in our own way, and because it's our publication, we get to do it our way as well. Because we've, we've talked about the, the anthologies that have accepted us. There's also anthologies that uh, come back and say, oh, you got to do this, that, and the, the other thing. And then all of a sudden, it's not as fun. I had a longtime editor that I worked with. I've, I've contributed a, a lot to uh, his particular anthology. He really likes me, really wants to work more with me, says, what else you got? So, so you show them, but uh, but uh, again, 
comes back and and starts placing certain restrictions. So so for us that that wasn't for us. We kind of didn't want to work under those particular set of uh, restrictions. So it was very fortuitous that Adam Prosser of Strange Romance was so open to it. And of course, we sort of wrote for the format as well, rather than have an editor come and say, I have an existing thing. Can you put your existing thing into my existing thing? Oh, no. Yeah, let's go uh, redraw this, redraw that. And again, it it would have kind of taken some of the fun out of it, which is... uh, the great thing about uh, because it's a collected edition, we can have however much space we want, extra pages in the in the collection to do a twenty. And this is actually an, uh, a very personal story in some ways as well. There's a lot of sort of there's a personal, less, a lot less comedy in this one. Yeah, there, and and there's a lot of uh, personal allegory in there. Sort as, of more melancholy. Well. Um. It's it's a it's more of a examination of someone at the end of their life, sort of like in the in the same vein of Logan, where it's like you're looking at things like did I do good, did I do right? So it's like comedic Logan. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. It's yeah. it's still funny. That's yeah. the other thing. It, right. it doesn't have those comedy moments. Yeah, yeah. There, especially once you, because yeah, you're you're sitting there writing a, a, a sort of a something that's a little more bittersweet. And the the wonderful thing is, Zip has given us an opportunity, especially once we introduce Nuon as your access character, someone who actually narrates, and you see what she's thinking mm-hmm. and uh, creates. A relationship with what is essentially a very difficult father figure. Yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of underlying subtext that you can write in there while doing Gonzo action comedy. Yeah. Uh, writing in so so yeah, you you here's here's our serious bit, but here's the comedy set piece that Marvin excels at. So yeah. So so what anthologies has Zip Kramer appeared in that are going to be in the collected edi- edition? Just the Monstrosity and uh, Strange Romance. Monstrosity, or? Strange Romance, uh, the self-published issues. There was the sl- Galactic Slavers. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was the self-published yeah. uh, uh, comics, and then uh, the other thing is we own in um, in our, our quote-unquote number zero issue, which reprinted the monstrosity story. We filled it up with Marvin's designs, and this is the part that uh, folks never see. Marvin is a very well; he's a very strong s- storyteller. Uh, you're doing a lot of breakdown work too, right? Mm-hmm. Like for for other people, like yeah. that's. That's one of his regular gigs where he goes in and doesn't do the finished art, but and and it's thankless work, but it's so important important to the yeah. process, oh, yeah. right? The, in terms of just like you did with so uh, Runaways. These are these are things where it's like, okay, we have an idea for a book, but like the the layout isn't working out. Can you can you do well, the yeah, layout for they, us? They uh, they will send me the script and goes here. I we need to figure out like sometimes. Some artists might have issues with page layouts and th- uh, doing uh, composition for panels. And they're like, here, take a run at this, doing thumbnails. And I'll do a th- quick run, look through the script, do a quick run through, do the page layout, send them back. And it, it sometimes it helps the, the artist on the book goes, they're like, okay, that clears up some of the storytelling issues we were having with the. Cause sometimes, if they're, especially if they're young artists or they're, have, they're inexperienced, they'll have issues where they'll place panels in a way that's, that, redirects the reader's direction that they're supposed to be reading in. So it's very confusing to the reader which way they should be going. Right. So that's that's one of the things I've been I've been I, sort of like a imagine like a script doctor. Yeah. Where you brought I, in to, to to fix story panel layouts. I was just about to say that cuz it reminds me of 
you know, the script doctors for television, like the uncredited people that go in and like fix scripts for TV and movies and that sort of thing. If you're doing the same thing for comics. If film, or sorry, if comics had directors, because the artist is the director. So mm-hmm. you're kind of uh, coming in doing a little bit of directing. Yeah, just a sort of a dry run, just for the. Mm-hmm. So it's actually more. It's actually I. I consider it more like for as a cinematography thing. So I'm. I'm actually just. I'm. I'm blocking out the panels for the for the artist to see like, which way should the camera be? Which way should we position this? Where? How do you draw the reader's eye down yeah. the page? Which direction mm-hmm. should you? The flow, like because I, I always say, comic books are. A composition within it, within a larger composition. It was a group of composition. So, do you think that that's like the artist's job, or do you think ultimately the like the writer should learn how to how to do this thing if they want to be successful in comics? I I recommend everybody. Okay. Uh, go take even if you're not an artist, go take Ty Templeton's. I I don't know what he's calling it these days. At one point, it was called laying out the page, right. and even if you sit there doing stick men right it will put you in the seat so that you won't write like we were talking about this earlier you won't write that that uh, one panel that's like yeah he punches him in the face and jumps out the window right you know Crazy. what i mean uh, so you know exactly what's on it and then also how it should flow and the other th- uh, the other life hack that uh, you tend to get is uh, the usages of what a panel does so uh, in loose Loose terms, you've got the wide panel, which is all, just all informational. Here's where everybody is. You've got the close-up, which is emotional right here. And then you have the medium shot, usually the full body shot, which is all about action. And in a lot of cases as well, comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people forget that. And I think this is uh, Marvin's brilliant thing. He is working in that vein as well. Your, your mediums are always my favorites. Because there's something going on, the, the 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 figures are flowing across the panel, and they're generally doing like slaps slapstick on paper. I like to call it right. That's awesome. So we were talking about like a particular style of anime that you guys sort of parodied in uh, Strange Romance with Wizard of Grammar and Love, and I don't want to get into too much detail of it, but. I realize that, like, for people that have never seen anime or don't know anything about it, can you give us, like, sort of the broad strokes of, like, what kind of anime, like, you, like, like you were parodying? And, like, because I've been kind of getting into anime, too, and I, and I started watching One Punch Man mm-hmm. on Netflix, and the parody that you're doing, it seems like anime is sort of doing that with One Punch Man. Like, it's its own, Very it's likely, its own yeah. parody. I, I don't know, I don't know if, 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 you're, if, if you can relate to that. Marvin, but uh, it it seems like you know the the self seriousness even for them that used to be in anime is 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 at least in this particular show uh, not there that they're, they're parodying themselves in a, yeah, in a way. Yeah, every a way. genre gets to a certain point where they're kind of self referential jokes about itself. It's like because right. it's like well, you get to a certain point where it's like there's the overdrawn melodramatic like animes that we all get used to. Like you're. Your Attack on Titans or your Naruto's, and then yeah, then there's a certain times you just got you have to take a step back and go, okay, you know what? You can you have you have the need for those melodramatic things, but then you need to sometimes step back and realize 
it's it can be a bit too much and it's like going like you need to tone it down a little bit guys right right but yeah so there's always a thing where it's like it's like every every sort of popularity of certain ideas like especially in anime you can sort of get to the point where it's like we've taken this serious thing as far as we can now we gotta take a step back and just laugh at ourselves a little bit because we're a bit overwrought. It's like it's like the it's like much as everyone hates the scary movie films that that print like or Naked Gun or things or things like you get to a certain point where it's like we have you're so saturated you're like okay let's just take a step back poke fun at these things like it's like the whole thing with um. It signals the end of the the genre, I think, because right. uh, yeah. you know you had what forty years of of westerns, mm-hmm. and then uh, Blazing Saddles, mm-hmm. and then what else was there to really say about it? Yeah, right, right, exactly. And they're doing so now. They're doing the same thing with anime. It seems. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah, re- really interesting because I just watched that like yesterday, and mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this like really recalls. What I was experiencing watching what watching One Punch Man—that's interesting. I feel like we've got a lot of reverence for our our the things we love as well that we're homaging, so to speak. I, I mean, uh, the, especially the I, it, it didn't occur to me till we were uh, sort of hanging out, and uh, you and your studio have a poster of uh, John Woo's Hard Boiled with yes. Chow Yun Fat, mm-hmm. you know, with the two guns and all that. I have a, a similar poster sort of in my space, and then. As as reference, I'm going back over the old st- old stories to sort of pull uh, material and uh, zip in his gun, where he's just he just doesn't fire. You know, traditionally it's like pew pew. No, zip is like firing his gun like like rapid fire. There's no like there's no end of ammunition, for example, which is which is which in is some ways, to, yeah, which is yeah. so it's like gun foo type stuff. Pretty much, it's like there's like the reload. What do you mean reload? I don't need to reload. So just keep shooting until everyone dies. It's done. Right, but right. again, it takes uh, the John Woo movies, even though they've almost become a parody of themselves, mm-hmm. at, 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 always take themselves very, very seriously. And I think there's that sort of fine line. Yeah. And between your personality and my personality, I think we just shoving it over the line over here and being able to laugh about yeah, well, it yeah. while nice. doing it in a in a fairly straightforward manner. Cool. So, Marvin, you have this thing over here with Sam doing the Zip Kramer stuff, mm-hmm. but then you're also working with Phil McCrory, who's yeah. the editor of Monstrosity, co-editor of Monstrosity, on uh, Kronk the Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. And that's happening at the same time? or it was. They were going, both projects were going congruently together. Okay. Yeah, so they're, they, I would sometimes be drawing a Zip Kramer story as well as drawing a Kronk story at the same time. So, it gave me a chance to, if I got bored of one thing visually, I could just go, okay... I'm tired of drawing spaceships and stars. I'm going to go draw people getting cut in half with swords. Right. Because that's much more like a sort of Conan the Barbarian type of thing, right? Yeah. Essentially, when it got pitched to me by Phil, he's like, what if Hellboy and Conan had a child together? (laughs) Besides being the ugliest child in the world, it's just like, okay, there's just guy that just hits and kills monsters and we're done. Like that's, that's, that's all it really is. It's like it's as simple as it can be. Like guy who was who gets paid to kill monsters and take jobs that no one else wants to do and it's just and it can and the best one of those best things much like Zip Kramer and Kronk is the fact that both of them have enough freedom in the character where it's like you can go whatever direction you feel like going in and you don't feel the pigeonholed by the genre or the characters. It's like like technically Zip can go do whatever he feels like, and it still fits. Right. And then same thing with Kronk. Kronk can go, he can go on a rescue mission. He can go kill a Cyclops on an island for fun. He can 
whatever, whatever we feel like doing, like whatever stories I throw at Phil, and Phil goes, he goes, another one, Marvin? Why? And that's pretty, that's pretty much it. And that's, and that's part of the fun of the story where it was like, of just us going like, hey, let's just do whatever. Like, now, and how- it's also a comedy, or no? That's actually that's actually pretty serious. It's uh, like, yeah, it's 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 a very dark fantasy. Okay. Yeah. No, it's not. So I wish it. No, it's not comedy. There are there are comedic elements here and there, but they're few and far between. But mostly, time it takes itself very seriously. Okay. Cool. So, and that was kickstarted recently. Like, like- it, it got funded. I think. Back in January, yeah, okay. like fun success. I think our goal is fifteen hundred. We made seventeen hundred off a little over the goal. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you, thank you. Do you mind if I ask how how did you meet Phil and how did you guys start working together? Phil, I think it was just happenstance because we were both and we both we know each other and like I said in the in the comp con scene, and we all hang out, we talk and chill out. Was and this then, before or after horror in the West? I, he got me. He asked me to work. I did a pinup for Horror in the West, and we were friends, and we just talked and hang out. And then, I originally the script originally the script for Cronk was actually a different story altogether. It was supposed to be a sample script for Hellboy. Okay. And then, the artist that was supposed to draw it didn't couldn't find time for it, so they asked me and Phil Terry me goes, "I'm gonna change the concept idea of this to Cronk, and we're gonna go with it." And then I'm like, "Okay." And then, then that's pretty how it goes from there on in. Because I think Phil enjoys my work, I hope. We're, we knew of each other, so we got to know each other more as time went on. Right. And Horror in the West was like the anthology that he did before yes. Monstrosity? Yeah, yeah. Right. So I did a pinup for that one. I think I did a cowboy fighting off the werewolf. Right. I don't know if that, I don't think that cowboy did very well, though. And you guys have been stockpiling uh, stories as well. I, I think that the, the little difference is that uh, every time we do a Zip Kramer story, we sort of uh, release it in the wild somehow. Pretty much, yeah. But, we, the first story got published in vol- Monstrosity Volume 1, and then the rest of them were kind of sitting there. We The first one, I think, was 10 pages. Then we did a second story that was 12 pages. Then we did a third story that was 22 pages. And then I, t- I said to Phil, Phil, we have to release these eventually together, right? And then... That we found a way to figure a way for the collected edition to, because uh, usually any cl- the cliche of any fantasy stories, a bunch of the their bunch of short stories is a tavern story or usually campfire stories. Mm-hmm. And I said to Phil, let's just not do that. Like I don't want much as I love Kronk and he he doesn't really live in the cliche of the stories. I said, why don't we do a blacksmith story where he goes his, gets his weapons repaired? And every time the guy's blacksmith's like, why are there bite marks on the sword? And he can explain why, go into the short story, like, this is why there's a bite mark in that sword, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then that's, and it, it makes an easy segue into the story. Yeah, it's, like, like a, it's like a frame mm-hmm. for a flashback yeah. s- story. It's a framing sequence, yeah. yeah. It's, our, it's our framing, yeah. So it made it easier, and Phil had this crazy idea for a alteration of Kronk's status quo at that point. And so I was like, okay, let's do this. Nice. So, yeah, it was, well, the it was exciting all... part is being able to read like a chunk of uh, Kronk at the same time yeah. Yeah. after uh, the initial sort of taste in the original Monstrosity. Right. So, so yeah, you're going from that one taste of Monstrosity to now it's going to be like a graphic. No- it's going to be like a graphic 68 novel. Sixty-eight pages. Yeah. Wow. It was released at uh, Toronto, Toronto Comic Con just a few weeks ago. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So. For you guys, like you are also going to be kickstarting Zip Kramer, right? Yes, yes. Okay, uh, tell me about that. Uh, essentially, it's going to run through the month of uh, April. I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, just assume that uh, the the campaign will already be on. Okay, uh, probably. Uh, yeah. 
at the time of uh, the airing of this. Probably, but, yeah. uh, we'll we'll post the information on Facebook and all the social medias and attach. We'll we'll send you the link to to attach it to the podcast. But uh, yeah, uh, we're not asking for a lot. Essentially, uh, seven hundred dollars to print a trade paperback. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as as well, our our good friend uh, Alfonso at Studio Comics Press is a wonderful friend to all of us locally and uh and as both a creator and a publisher himself really under sort of understands your needs as a as a creator in printing these uh trade i think he printed the uh, black hole hunters yeah. trade as well so uh yeah I, I essentially uh went to alfonso uh told me the price and off we go beyond that uh, we'd love to give uh, marvin after that, we reach the seven hundred goal. Uh, uh, pay trade because he he deserves it. Nice. He does amazing work, and especially there's a, a brand new story in the volume. Right. Rewards are uh, original art, and your chance to appear as a major villain as well as uh, uh, cannon fodder. Right. Uh, in the book itself, there's a lot of uh, over-the-top action scenes, right. uh, so there's a lot of opportunity to uh, draw people in there as either a centaur robotic warlord, or who's who's a major villain, or uh, the space pirates right. that populate the story. So, Marvin, just to close it out, yeah. I mean, we, we sort of got into this whole thing about all these indie books that you're doing, mm-hmm. and that's great, and it sounds like you're having a lot of fun and everything. But, like, is this what you're going to be doing, like, the indie books? Or do you still have aspirations to, like, work for, like, the big two and do do those sorts of things as well? Like, where do you see your pro- trajectory professionally going into the future, uh, you know, with these collaborations and stuff? When I was younger, I really wanted to work for the big two. But uh, as time's gone on, it's just the reality of getting into that comp- – the companies is it's, – it's a very small door. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people trying to hit the trying to get to that same door you are. And odds are most times they're probably younger, probably more talented than you are. I'm actually having more fun doing this, to be honest. Like it's just right. it, it doesn't like I said, we collaborate with especially with my collaborators like uh, Sam and F. Phil, there's so much freedom and the ability to just toss ideas back and forth. It's so much more freedom and fun. You can no editor is telling us, well, you can't do that to that character. That's corporate policy. That doesn't fly. Right. So it's like you're not and, – and it being at Marvel and DC, it would be nice. It would be a great paycheck. It's just one of those things where it's like, like I said, cog in a wheel. Right. Cog in a very big wheel, but it's just like no matter what happens, they pull you out. The, the wheel keeps on turning. Right, right, And right. so it's just it's – just, it doesn't say that artists aren't important. That this. I don't know. It just I have more freedom and per- I can tell more personal stories. And you own your own content too. Yeah, it's that's totally the right. other beautiful thing. And, and before you- the day we make like a Zip Kramer or Dewan toy. There you go. Right. There you go. I'll so, work on that. So you've really carved like your own comfort being a person who's who's worked in the industry for for a long time now. Do you feel the freedom now of what you're doing? Is it still? Uh, a struggle as a as a freelance independent ma- to make a living. Uh, it's it's less of a struggle now than it was before. Think thanks to the internet. Because my career actually, I my career started pre-internet and post-internet. Right. So things where it was hard, especially pre-internet, you're trying to get your name heard, people get to notice you. Now with social media like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, DeviantArt, there and comic forums, there's so much more opportunities to let other people see your work. So getting the things like to offset drawing some stories like Zip Kramer or Kronk, 
I can take commissions. I can get commissions from around the world or do other projects to fill the time to make to pay the bills or just to make ends meet. So it's never a thing. I I don't have to leave the country. I just I can work from the comfort of my house and just email in and send scan things and send them off. It's it's it. Life is a lot easier now than it used to be. Are you- there aspirations to do Zip Kramer or or Kronk the Neanderthal? To send it off to like the bigger independent publishers, like Image or those sorts of things, or are you just going to do not? it the way that you do it? Eventually, yeah. We're we're compiling the material. If uh, a publisher wants to pick it up, uh, the great thing is we did it on our own terms. So, so uh, and, and this is often the the success story, right? Of uh, someone doing uh, something independently that eventually takes on a life of its own. So nice. Well, I hope it does. Um, where can people find you, Marvin, if they want to uh, track your career, if they really dig this interview? How can they follow you on social media? The easiest place to find me is on Facebook. I have my own personal Facebook, or they have a, I have a Facebook group for my artwork. That's probably usually it. I don't have Twitter or Instagram, which is very strange in most people's opinion of me, because I have I have a tendency to have a, have a big mouth. And yeah, and yeah, things are usually like DeviantArt. I have, D- I have DeviantArt, but I haven't logged in in a couple of years now, so it's probably outdated now. Right, right. Okay, cool, man. Well, well, thanks for coming in, and and thank you for lending your support, Sam. Uh, it, it really fleshes out Marvin's story to have you here to sort of, you know, go back and forth and, and, and uh, talk about the collaboration in sort of broader, broader terms. Well, it's such a fun collaboration. That's the other thing. And, and I, I think everyone in the Toronto community knows Marvin. That's the other beautiful thing. And uh, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I, I can't emphasize that enough. And yeah, Marvin is a great guy. He's hilarious. Uh, and he does good work. Yeah, you, you've worked with people of all levels of the industry. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who, who owe you a debt of gratitude, for sure. And uh, if you like Sam, Sam, we'll have you in uh, back to do a full solo episode. <laughs> because I, I've known Sam for a while now, and, and he's got levels of depth to his geekery and the things that he does <laughs> There's that, some we deep haven't, that we haven't even gotten into. They're dark sellers it's, down there. <laughs> it's, it's not just comics. It's custom toy making and a whole bunch of other things. So... Uh, We'll 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 have that and and I'll let everybody know on Instagram. You just follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash speechbubble, Instagram.com slash speechbubble. And so when Sam is back, I'll I'll let you all know. And uh we'll, until then though, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never sleeps network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check HarryT.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.